1: This Washington Post Live podcast is powered by AT&T Business, keeping your business connected, now with 5G nationwide. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage.
2: 5G technology is poised to transform the technological landscape across the country and around the world. It promises to accelerate data speeds, improve quality, and unlock connectivity between machines, material, and people. In this episode, Post Live sits down with the mayor of San Jose, California, to learn how he's guiding his city through this transformation. Following his segment, we'll hear from top experts on the role national security plays during this pivotal time. Let's listen. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Joe Marks. I'm a cybersecurity reporter here with The Washington Post. And today we're going to look at the implications of emerging 5G technology and its impact on cities, states, and the world. Uh, we're lucky to be joined today by uh, the mayor of a city uh, whose city was one of the first to adopt 5G technology. Uh, please welcome Mayor Sam Liccardo of San Jose. Hi mayor. Good morning.
3: Great to be with you Joe, thanks for having me.
2: Thanks so much for joining us. So uh, your city was one of the first to move to 5G. Can, for people who are new to this, can you tell us how does 5g change the state of internet in a city and what is that looking like in san jose
3: yeah the ability to be able to get faster download speeds greater capacity lower latency those are all great opportunities for civic applications as well as for industry uh what it physically looks like in a city like san jose is the deployment of thousands of what we call small cells uh rather than large cell towers all throughout the city uh the uh, telecoms are installing small cells on telephone poles, uh, city street light poles, all throughout the city. Uh, these are much smaller devices, and ultimately, what that means is we have a lot of opportunity for future application as this network gets built out and as devices get upgraded to be able to handle that capacity.
2: And one thing that's interesting is you've you've used this transition to five G uh, that the telecom companies are making to. Try to uh, lessen the digital divide in your community. Can you tell us how that's happened?
3: Yeah, we struck deals with the major telecoms a couple years ago in negotiations. They c- critically wanted rapid deployment of small cell infrastructure as they want throughout major cities in this country because it's critically important to have a certain density of that network to be able to deliver the benefits of 5G. And so the critical thing for them, for cities is get out of the way, help us deploy it quickly. Uh, And we were more than willing to do that. But we also recognize the deployment uh, needed to better serve so many communities that are left behind. I think many of us regard internet access uh, really as something of of a public utility, something that everyone should have access to, particularly in COVID as we're learning Uh, all of the the harms of the great digital divide on so many of our children who are unable to learn. And so really critically important for us to find ways to get resources to be able to bring connectivity into low-income neighborhoods where a lot of families could not afford even the most basic uh, of internet plans. Uh, And so we cut deals with them where they would contribute to uh, a fund, uh, a digital inclusion fund that we would then use to help bring connectivity and devices and skills to low-income communities. So that started a couple years ago. We've grown that fund, also leveraged it with some philanthropy and committed public dollars as well. And that has helped us uh, really accelerate uh, the build-out of free Wi-Fi in many parts of the city. It's now connecting more than 100,000 people that weren't connected a couple years ago yeah, it's
2: kind of surprising when I mean, you're you're right in the heart of Silicon Valley, but either there are how many uh, hundreds of thousands of children that don't have access to home broadband?
3: Yeah, it's it's well, uh, I'll tell you the number that we estimated four years ago. We believed we had ninety five thousand people uh, who had no connectivity. Here we are, in a city of about one point one million in the heart of Silicon Valley. Uh, that is a source of great shame and embarrassment for us and certainly a huge hindrance to the educational and economic opportunities for thousands of our kids. Uh, what we've learned since we've dug in is that the number is probably even greater as we think about not just connectivity, we think about devices. About 23,000 kids uh, in our public schools did not have devices. And so, you know, between philanthropy and using Federal CARES Act money and our own investments and partners, uh, we've been able to do a lot of bridging in just the last year or so as we've tried to accelerate this deployment but I think the gaps are far greater in every city than anyone wants to really admit. And essentially, we're leaving an entire generation behind uh, as the more access, the better access uh, portion of that generation is able to continue to thrive and learn.
2: And yet, you the you butted heads with the FCC on this because the federal government isn't necessarily on board with uh, cities using this transition to five G. To, to leverage this kind of uh, change?
3: Yeah, I think you know the FCC under this administration has certainly been very industry friendly and the perspective of many in the industry is what we really need is federal mandates uh, that essentially tell cities uh, you better approve all these permits, get all these small cells up on the poles, get out of the way and don't charge us anything for it. Uh, we need rapid deployment that doesn't cost us anything and we need you to move at the speed of, of light. And the challenge of course is, is that it actually takes human beings to approve the permits, ensure that the installations are safe, get them up on poles, and that costs resources. And uh, as a result, uh, we have really two different models of, uh, of moving forward. We certainly know that there are some cities that have been resisting unduly and charging excessive fees and trying to uh, you know, extract a lot of concessions that probably aren't appropriate. But what we also know is that the only way this is going to work, if we believe this really should function as a public utility, is that either the government needs to ensure that there is equitable deployment of this technology and this infrastructure, uh, and that may require, for example, the industry to step up or may require the federal government to step up. But one way or another, we need more equitable deployment. Uh, And if we don't believe that this is a public utility, then it seems to me uh, we should expect that the industry would sub- be subjected to all the vagaries of a market and cities should be able to charge whatever fees they want. Uh, now, I don't think at the extreme any of us believe that that's the best outcome. I think what we'd like to see is more collaborative approach in which industry and government recognize the, of mo- the, imp- the, the, the imperative of moving very quickly. Uh, let's charge fees that are appropriate to help to pay for the basic staff that's required to put these in place. Uh, but ensure that we can deploy these equitably.
2: You know, in the second half of this program, we're going to turn to the national security concerns with 5G. And and the U.S. is really in a race with with China and with a lot of the world to get this next generation of super fast Internet going. Um, Does the federal government have uh, any point when they say, hey, you, it's the capital of Silicon Valley, why are you holding this up? This is a national security issue.
3: You know, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think we know that this particular administration, that national security has been used in very creative ways to justify a lot of things. Uh, what is imperative, I think we all agree, is that we want this technology to be deployed quickly and to be ubiquitous. Um, and there are two separate ways of looking at this. Either this is a public utility that everyone should have access to, uh, and uh, either we give free reign to public infrastructure. Let's face it, local taxpayers have been paying to put up all these light poles uh, in cities like San Jose, uh, and uh, they certainly shouldn't have to subsidize the free deployment of infrastructure that benefits a telecom industry. Uh, So, if we're not going to put this burden on local taxpayers, then it needs to be either on industry or the federal government. Now, the federal government's not stepping up with money, so the industry needs to be paying fees that compensate local taxpayers for the cost of the infrastructure, the maintenance of the infrastructure that they're utilizing. And I think that's really the basic premise here. Uh, if we think it should be uh, a public utility that should be rapidly deployed, and that means and we give free access or widespread access, then the industry also needs to step up and regard it as a public utility ensure that it's uh, it's freely available uh, to low-income communities, as we expect many utilities, for example, uh, water and 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 electric infrastructure and so forth, we expect that is going to be uh, subsidized in some way.
2: So once 5G in San Jose, what's it going to look like? I mean, this is a whole new generation of Internet technology, far faster than anything we've dealt with before. H- how are companies going to operate? H- how is uh, industry going to operate?
3: Well, a lot's going to depend on the deployment and how quickly um, we're able to, with greater density and deployment, and um, and obviously the advance in the device is able to really dramatically reduce latency uh, in the signal. That is really important as we think about some of the great applications of 5G, particularly around, for example, autonomy uh, in vehicles, Uh, We are, for example, looking at how we can transform what is an aging light rail fleet into a fleet of autonomous buses. Well, it's going to require very rapid uh, deployment of uh, hardware, uh, that is sensors uh, and small cells in a city uh, that to really dramatically reduce the latency to ensure that these vehicles can operate safely and Pivot uh, in a moment's second as soon as data becomes available. That, for example, uh, there may be uh, a potential collision if the bus does not turn or brake. You know that requires uh, a lot of hardware and a lot of hardware investment, and it's not the application simply isn't going to be available tomorrow. This is going to take several years to build out. There's no question. There's great opportunity in 5G, but I think we need to recognize it's going to take some time. Uh, And there's a lot of investment that needs to happen before we get there.
2: So this dream of autonomous vehicles and internet connected devices zipping around a city is finally going to happen, but it's going to be a decade or more?
3: Yeah, I'm not good at predicting. I think autonomy certainly is here already in in various ways. And the question is, at what level? And I think we'll certainly see in public transit uh, autonomy coming to us much sooner, uh, particularly in dedicated guideways. But there's a long way to go in all of this, and many of the applications that I think we all imagine, particularly in the Internet of Things, a lot of cities are looking at various applications around everything from air quality monitors to traffic control and public safety devices of various kinds. A lot of those applications uh, perhaps aren't that impactful immediately because the technology is not quite there, uh, but we expect in the years ahead it will be.
2: And what has this done to uh, jobs and industry in your town? Do you expect this to bring more companies to San Jose?
3: Well, we expect it will probably bring more jobs everywhere. Uh, propose the projections we've seen from a lot of smarter folks than me, you know, expect trillions of dollars of benefit in the economy. Interestingly, some of the greatest benefits economically are found in manufacturing which although we certainly still do have some tech manufacturing here in Silicon Valley, much of that has been outsourced. And so some of the greatest benefits may be um, in the Rust Belt, uh, where the manufacturing is still happening, where processes uh, can be rapidly uh, improved, safety can be dramatically improved as well. And so I think the benefits are really going to be widespread. This is not just about San Jose and Silicon Valley, though certainly uh, a lot of those devices and uh, a lot of the software is being developed here uh, we think the impacts are going to be felt very broadly.
2: That's interesting. Do you talk to other mayors about uh, the possibilities of 5G, and and what do you tell them about bringing it to their communities?
3: Well, a lot of mayors are very interested in what we did with the telecom companies a couple of years ago in forming this digital inclusion fund. So I get a lot of questions from other cities about that. Uh, but unfortunately, because of recent decisions from the FCC. That is no longer an option for cities. Cities can't even negotiate with telecoms over the fee rates because the federal government has essentially mandated a fee that has to apply everywhere. And so that's been a source of great frustration uh, to a lot of my colleagues. And uh, as a result, there have been some lawsuits, too. So. uh, A lot of folks are really trying to figure out the digital divide issue and how 5G can play a role. And, you know, we're experimenting in different ways. For example, with one telecom company, we're looking at densifying 5G deployment in low-income neighborhoods and seeing, if, for example, through school districts, we can actually enable a single customer uh, through the school district to be able to provide thousands of students uh, access to their cellular data plan Uh, that essentially then will enable uh, just through the use of the cellular plan uh, free digital access for those students obviously the tab gets picked up by the public agency the school district in this case you know those are the kinds of things that we think may be possible to address the digital divide because that really is what most mayors are interested in when they're coming to me talking to me about this they understand that there may be some great technological benefits But I think there's a certain fatigue with the recognition that those benefits are overwhelmingly inuring uh, to only a portion of their their population.
2: You mentioned the lawsuits. I I believe it's at the Ninth Circuit now. How is that going?
3: Uh, Well, not well, we've lost. Uh, (laughs) So we're now now, uh, uh, putting our heads together to figure out what's uh, next. Uh, Ninth Circuit of appeals didn't go our way. We recognize that there's a real challenge, obviously, uh, in battling against the federal supremacy over uh, FCC regulation. What I would hope would emerge perhaps in a new Congress in January would be a more balanced approach, one that would recognize if this is a public utility and we're going to give free access or, or wider access to telecoms, to public infrastructure, then someone needs to pay for that. And uh, we hope that we can, through some uh, work in Congress, ultimately get the result we, we need.
2: Are you hoping that if there is a Biden administration and perhaps a Democratic Senate that you can um, move some of these ideas there and spark a broader conversation about how 5G could affect this digital divide?
3: Well, you know, I'm a bit biased in all this because I am a Democrat, but, you know, for me, what we have seen primarily from uh, particularly the Senate is an interest in investment in rural broadband uh, and very little interest in federal investment and urban broadband. And certainly we need both, and there's no reason why we can't do both, uh, but the overwhelming amount of need is in large cities in pockets of um, you know, in low-income neighborhoods where residents simply don't have the resources. And so we need a, a focus in the cities, and I would suspect that a Democratic administration would be more interested in that.
2: Oh, thank you so much for that. Is that. That's a really interesting thing that you brought up. Is We've gone through, I mean, this is 5G. We've gone through generations of Internet technology. Um, why do you think it is that this rush has left so many people behind?
3: Uh, you know, this is certainly nothing new in technology, right? We've seen this here in Silicon Valley for four decades, uh, that those with resources are able to benefit enormously from the digital transformations that are happening all around us. Uh, And I think all too often it's been an afterthought that those who don't have access are increasingly going to be left in the dark. You know, I'd like to believe that we're starting to see a new um, thinking emerge, particularly at the highest echelons of tech. Facebook, for example, just... Uh, made a couple of significant commitments in our city to try to help bridge the digital divide. I think they recognize that ubiquity of access is really critically important, certainly to their platform, but to the future of this community. Uh, and so I think the thinking is changing, uh, but it's unfortunately taken a couple of decades for us to get here.
2: Uh, thank you so much, Mayor, for taking time with us today.
3: Joe, it's been a pleasure. Great to be with you. Uh,
2: There is a lot more of our program coming up. Uh, Please stay with us. We're gonna have a conversation about uh, 5G and national security concerns. Welcome back. I'm Joseph Marks, once again, cybersecurity reporter here at the Washington Post. And we're gonna shift now to talk about the economic and national security implications of the shift to 5G. I'm joined by two great guests. We have retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, He's now a senior fellow at the Hus- Hudson Institute and one of the nation's foremost experts in 5G, Diane Ronaldo, who is currently with Beacon Global Strategies. Welcome to both of you.
1: It's great to be Hi. here. Thank you.
2: So to, to set a very scary stage here, General Spalding, you've painted a big brother-like picture of your concerns about what could happen under 5G. Can you walk us through what that looks like?
0: Sure. Uh, I actually experienced many of these attributes when I was a senior defense official and defense attache in Beijing uh, back in 2017. Back then, you could uh, take an application or take, a, take your phone out of your pocket, order food uh, from, say, WeChat, but then you could put your phone away and walk into a restaurant and never have to touch it again to complete the transaction because in the restaurant you'd have a camera that did facial recognition and then notify the server and they'd hand you your food and greet you by name. This is elements of 4G and 5G in that scenario. And it really demonstrates what 5G is going to be about. It's not going to be about the smartphone. It's going to be about giving you the applications and services via the smart city. And so in the case of say, for example, an Uber, rather than taking out your phone and, and hitting the Uber app, You're just going to walk out of your building or house and say, I want an Uber. Camera will pick up your face, do facial recognition, perhaps a microphone will pick up your voice and they'll send a a car on the way. So in many ways, the computing environment moves from the smartphone where the application is run to the network itself. So uh, we were just talking about edge computing. So it's using that computing and networking together to provide you a completely different kind of experience. But to put a point on it, what's so wrong with that? That sounds great. Oh yes, it sounds great. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the challenge that uh, the, that we found is that the Chinese Communist Party realized that not only could they, you know, improve your customer experience and thereby generate more revenue, they also could use the data collected about you to influence your social and political um, uh, your beliefs. So. That is essentially what we face in in a new kind of 21st century national security paradigm where all of these companies that are working on 5G, whether they be American companies or Chinese companies or European companies, are coming together in the industry standards making body, 3GPP, to make a compatible network and in security Uh, In particular, the Chinese Communist Party has uh, implemented most of the security standards in in, uh, 5G through that standards-making body and has most of the underlying patented technology with regard to it. So the challenge we face then is as 5G rolls out, the ability to collect data. And China uh, believes that their goal is to become the Saudi Arabia of data because it drives Artificial intelligence enables their companies to not only be dominant economically, but also allows the Chinese Communist Party an uh, ability to influence populations, not only their own, but also outside their border.
2: Um, so I want to get back to China in a minute, but I want to bring in Diane. Uh, probably not surprisingly, you two have pretty diametrically opposed views about who should be in charge of the development of 5G. Diane, um, you favor an industry driven driven approach can you tell us why
1: yeah, absolutely and, and it's great to be with you all today I would say that the current um, the current structure that's been in place for 25 plus years has has let us lead on 3g 4g we're, we're leading on 5g uh, Any, any type of uh, scheme that is being suggested where we, the United States, the U S government would actually take hold of, of any wireless infrastructure is just not feasible. It's an unworkable scheme cloaked in, in national security. We talk about 5G as it's one thing, but it's not, it's a myriad of technological deployments. You have three major carriers that are currently building out 5G in three different ways. They're using different vendors, different bands of spectrum, different technological advances. And then you have a fourth carrier coming online with Dish Networks, and they're using open RAN to build out their nationwide network. And the competitive system is allowing the marketplace to to take hold. If one of those companies has a failure, customers are able to go someplace else. And if if one company loses customers, you can bet that they are going to work and run as fast as they can to bring up their, their network to par. And that's how we're driving the future of technologies through that competitive edge. Can you imagine moving that to one single company, one point of success, one point of failure? If something happens, what do we do? Who loses? We'll all end up losing. We want to make sure that the most advanced telecommunications network in the world, the United States, is able to continue on the path of success that the United States has shown over the past 25 years. I'm bullish on the United States and excited to see what our industry leads us in the future.
2: Uh, General, it sounds like Diane is saying uh, 5G is coming. Uh, We should be as expedient and competitive about it as possible. That's industry's job government will just slow things down and, and we'll lose the future what's what's wrong with that
0: well you know she talked about leading it in in, uh, in 2g 3g and 4g the truth of the matter is the government used to put a lot of money into bell labs to do telecommunications research now we have no network equipment providers in the united states whatsoever in terms of deployments most of the deployments going in for 5g today are in china and south korea the biggest and most and the best network equipment providers are in China and they dominate the 5G space because they're determined to do the same thing the United States did with 4G. So if you go back to the introduction of the iPhone uh, back in 2007, the top five in market cap were AT&T, General Electric, Microsoft, ExxonMobil and Shell. Fast forward 10 years, it becomes Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix and Google. So what the Chinese Communist Party figured out is that they could leapfrog the, the, uh, the U.S. dominance in the information economy by giving the app services and business models business to the Chinese companies, which were, are the bats: Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. 5G is really about enabling machine-to-machine uh, um, communication and artificial intelligence and autonomy. So as I said the Chinese Communist Party is actually leading in 5G and they're leading in artificial intelligence and they're leading in 5G deployment. So not only do, do they have uh, network equipment providers that provide network equipment all over the world and the only reason they're not providing it today in the United States is because we've blocked them. And so What the United States has done is essentially given up leadership in technology because the government is no longer willing to invest in it. This is a national security issue precisely because the Chinese Communist Party and other authoritarian regimes like Russia, like North Korea, like Iran, use the data and the global Internet to influence populations to influence them to, you know, abandon democratic principles. This is going on all around the world, not just in the United States, and we see it every single day. So it is, uh, in a sense, the way that countries go to war has changed, and they've changed with the introduction of a global Internet.
2: Um, You you talked about Chinese companies that are uh, owning uh, 5G network infrastructure, two big ones, Huawei and ZTE. Diane, should we be concerned that if we let the free market run the show here, we're gonna end up with is uh, Huawei and ZTE controlling a lot of the uh, 5G infrastructure across the world.
1: So I will say that I am currently working on a project, the Open RAN Policy Coalition, where I am the executive director. It's 56 global uh, companies that span not only the globe, but the mobile ecosystem. And these companies have come together to talk about if we're able to standardize the interfaces between the component parts, the radio, the software, the hardware, that you will be able to drive competition, which will lead to greater innovation and in drop down prices. As a former policymaker, I can tell you that this has been on the minds of policymakers for 10 years now. And from a commerce standpoint, we always looked at this issue if not them, then who? How do we ensure a more robust and diverse supply chain? And when I was t- at commerce and talking to my counterparts around the world, I can tell you that first and foremost, it was cost. On why they were making a decision to go with one company versus another, um, and second was the ease—the ease of actually putting it all together. So the idea of open RAN, we're able to mix and match. You are able to optimize and best customize a network suited for for the needs. Whether you're in New York City or my small hometown of Rumford, Maine, you want to build a network that's best suited for for your area. Um, and so not only are you further invigorating that competition, that innovative spirit. You're driving more players to this market where the barrier for entry has been so high. You're now allowing all of these um, different component manufacturers to, to come into the market and, and really show that that next generation edge of um, vendor telecommunication vendor networks.
2: Can you explain what Open RAN is and does that mitigate some of the security concerns that General was talking about?
1: So Open RAN is the concept, it's not a technology, it's just a different way of structuring the architecture. So I would liken it to the old stereo system that I received as a kid in a box, where you have all the component parts, all the pieces in one box, and that we're able to plug plug it all together in the back. So the idea, but you know, you know if you wanted a new cd player you couldn't interchange it because it wasn't connected to the system or if you were upgraded as time goes on you couldn't run spotify through it because it didn't have bluetooth so the idea of open rain is that you would standardize the interfaces between the subcomponents so that you can mix and match so that you can. You know, make a decision to go with the next best radio that's on the market um, or uh, update software as it comes online. So you're really opening up competition within the subcomponent level that actually makes up the whole uh, base, st- base station radio access network. Um, and so the base station is actually what's going to be on top of your cell towers. It's the most intensive uh, portion of a network, considering you have to have one on every, t- every tower. So it's been, um, it's been overwhelming over the past seven months since we started the coalition, where we have, you know, originally thinking just domestically in the United States, but realize this is indeed a global conversation. So we are spending our, uh, the vast majority of our time right now talking to policymakers around the world and sharing best practices on how we can move forward into the next generation of networks.
2: And in, in general, uh, officials at the Homeland Security Department, State Department, have spent a lot of the last two years Trying to convince allies to not allow Huawei to build their 5G networks out of concern about what the Chinese Communist Party could do on those systems. They have talked at times about Open RAN as a strategy to mitigate this. The idea being that if the US or an ally is building the software that runs on top of that 5G hardware, that might make us more secure. Uh, does that have
0: any validity, do you think? Not at this point. You know, I think Open RAN is a, is a, is a great idea. The challenge is. The radio heads themselves actually are still an art to make a carrier-grade radio head. You know, the best radio manufacturers today are Samsung, uh, Huawei, and Ericsson. There's also Nokia and ZTE. And so, you know, if you're going to have a top-notch radio program that supports a carrier-grade network um, that is enabling you to then choose from companies that aren't, You know, influenced by standards or technology from China, then that's going to require investment by government, because quite frankly, if you look at the telecommunications ecosystem, there's not enough profit being made by these network equipment providers that, you know, force them or enable them to actually spend the kind of money in research and development to create the kind of, you know, distributed architecture that Open RAN requires. And so if the governments aren't putting money into it, it's really it, it's a it's a, uh, a set up for failure. So I think the challenge that we have right now is, you know, the government actually has to get into back into R&D in the telecommunication space. It's been there in the military, but it's stepped away in these in these commercial telecom um, implementations. And it's a challenge for our democracies because. As we've seen, as we see today, we have Chinese, Russians, Iranians basically influencing our space through that uh, telecommunications infrastructure. So we have to really focus on this as a national security imperative. Um, Given the absence, I- Go
1: ahead, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. If i Joe, if I could just add on to that. What we've seen in the telecommunications industry is that there's been very little venture capital money because of the closed and proprietary system that exists today. And already, as, as the general mentioned, there are four major radio providers. We've seen over the past two years that there are now 19. By breaking down the barriers to entry, you're going to allow the next greatest product to able to come forward because you're able to break down those barriers and limit that barrier to entry. So you know I agree by by injecting further competition that you are going to bring more players onto the market, which is going to allow us that leap ahead technology that everyone's looking for.
2: Um, the The president and some officials have floated the idea that, you know, hey, we really don't have a five g builder to compete with Huawei. You know, what if we just invest in Ericsson and in Nokia, two Scandinavian companies that are in the five build five G systems? Should we do that, Diane?
1: So I will say that the the idea of bringing forth an open RAN concept would eliminate the need for the government to step in and, as you said, prop up a company. Um, again, by breaking down the barriers and opening up the architecture, it allows for new entrants into the market. Um, And there are a lot of players in the United States that already exist. You know, the Microsofts and the um, uh, Comscopes who who build radios of the world that could easily step into that space, um, as well as global companies that um, have not yet, have not yet been thought of, but it really does kind of break down the barriers and allow for new entrants into the marketplace.
2: How far do you take that? I mean, the, as I said earlier, the federal government has spent two years trying to, um, first barring Huawei from building 5G systems in the United States, trying to convince allies in Europe and elsewhere to not allow Huawei to build their systems. Um, is that moot? Should, uh, is there no danger in a Huawei-built system now if Open RAN uh, can be utilized?
1: So the United States has made a decision that they're not going to allow Huawei and ZTE to build our networks due to national security concerns. Um, Again, as you talk to people and ask why they choose one company and not the other, there are costs associated with, you know, when my former boss, Chairman Mike Rogers, who wrote the Huawei report back in 2011, that idea was originally brought to him by one of his local carriers, who said that this one company came to him and offered to build out their network and it was actually, uh, it, they would end up losing money on the deal. And they were curious and wondering if, if you know, Mike had had ever heard of them or, or understood why they would actually offer to build out their network. Um, and so that was really the precipitous of, of, chairman Rogers from drafting the Wawa report, which has led us to where we are today in this conversation. Um, so while we let that stand, the coalition, we, are, we did not form because of any one company or any one region of the world, but what we are doing is answering that question, if not them, then who? How do we ensure more robust and diverse supply chain? Um, people want to people want to know that their information is traversing in a safe way. You know, we have come so far in the past ten years well, in discussing cybersecurity. It is now the forefront of a conversation, no longer an afterthought. Um, CEOs they're talking about it in the boardroom. They want to know that their uh, that their own networks are safe and secure. So we want to ensure that we are continuing down this path, having these very important conversations, and also promoting safe and secure ways. Um, into our next generation of networks.
2: And just clarifying for people who don't know the history, you, were, you worked for Chairman Rogers of the House Intelligence Committee uh, back in the day in that 2011 Wawa, just how far back all of this goes. Um, General, you say you were fired from the National Security Council because of your concerns about China. What, what do we not understand about the danger posed by China and Chinese technology?
0: I think it's wrapped up in everything I've been trying to say today, and that is the nature of national security and how countries compete has changed in a globalized, Internet-connected world. And in fact, our adversaries are using our open system against us. They're using globalization and Internet against us. And they actually... Have written plans to do this, and so this idea that we are there's a globalized world where everybody agrees on the um, need for democratic principles and free trade and open markets—that is not the case, and in fact, it's a very contentious place. You know, our founding fathers believed in industrial policy, but they believed in protecting the critical infrastructure of the United States. They believed in promoting our own technology and, and independence from, you know, other foreign uh, at- that could be potential adversaries. This has become even more critical in this hyper-connected world. And so, the to you know, for example, we spend $800 billion per year at the Pentagon. We're spending a trillion dollars on F-35s. Right. The idea that we wouldn't spend on this critical national security uh, area, I think, is is clearly a, a mistaken endeavor. Can you just break down for us then, in, in layman's terms, if the in-
2: if industry is not going to lead here and we're going to keep adversaries out, what do you want 5G to look like?
0: Well, I think 5G ought to be something that provides data security and privacy across the board. If you look at the Defense Innovation Board's report or the Defense uh, F- Science Board's report or any other reports on the security in 5G or any of the telecommunications infrastructure, they were not built to be secure or private. They're actually built according to you know, low cost principles. And that's what businesses have to do. So, But when you're talking about data, you know, the, the country's privacy and its intellectual property and certainly the data that, you know, enables adversaries to influence our population. Now you're talking about the crown jewels of our society. And to say that, you know, AT&T or any company is going to protect that data as much as, you know, you would want standards that were as robust as the military is for protecting data to ensure that those crown jewels don't fall to our adversaries. Um,
2: Diane, you've talked, said that people generally go with the supplier that is cheapest and and that these other concerns tend to be more ancillary. Um, And and yet the U.S. has not completely struck out in its efforts to get allies to steer clear of Huawei and ZTE. Uh, You know, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Um, and increasingly chunks of Europe, although not not all of it, and and many of them have made uh, little compromises. Why is that?
1: I think people, again, it is 2020, and people understand the national security concerns of what using one vendor over another means for their networks. Um, It's important that we are able to educate, that we're able to share information, and we're doing that. I would say in the past 10 years, the United States has gone above and beyond to ensure that our allies around the world are properly, um, they, that they have the ability to to have the same type of intelligence that we have in our country and that we share that information and that they know the, the possibilities of having an unsecure, untrusted vendor in their networks and what that could do to them. Um, it, you know, it is vital to our not only national security, but we all all understand at this day and age that national security and economic security run hand in hand. Um, so I think you have to be cautious on how you deal with issues of national security. You know, it is not a binary choice that if there is a national security concern, that maybe the government should take it all in house. You tend to the issues that you're currently dealing with. The United States has flourished under its current competitive innovation model. Would we upend that? No, of course not. We tend to it. As part of my my former duties at the House Intelligence Committee, we worked on the Cyber Information Sharing Act, which was passed into law in 2015, which allows companies to share threat vectors with one another without fear of any any potential complications or encourages the government to share intelligence they have with our communications networks to make sure that they are receiving um, the best and and most uh, accurate, uh, any type of issues that, that could impact the networks. And this is occurring. All of our major carriers have relationships with the IC and it's important that they continue to have that open relationship. And again, the competitive model suits us well. It is a proven track record. The idea that we would move our current system to one one company, one gatekeeper, one point of success, one point of failure will not suit us. We need to keep on the track that we've been. Again, we've led in 3G, 4G, we're leading in 5G. Um, There's absolutely no reason that we would change from the trajectory that we're on.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about that economic and national security link? I mean, what is your concern if there are too many restrictions put on the development of 5G, what's going to happen to U.S. competitiveness?
1: Sure. So currently, the United States, we through the three major carriers that we have, DISH Network is currently building out their nationwide network. We are covering 75% of Americans. Um, there are new spectrum bands coming online every day. You have the C-band auction that's happening in December. You know, the, the idea that we have fallen behind is, is just not the case whatsoever. And it's only a talking point used to people who are trying to take us off course. Um, we have led for the past 25 years in cellular wireless technologies, and we will continue to lead. Our, you? Know, Back, back in, you know, 3G was the advent of the smartphone, 4G kind of powered that smartphone, 5G is the internet of everything. All of our lives, especially now that we're in this COVID time, are relying on our, on our connections. We want to ensure that those connections remain strong and, and that we can rely on them. Again, and you have three, now four companies that are able to provide that service. If there's a problem with one of those companies, you can take your phone and you can go someplace else. If there is one company that's providing service, what happens if there's a point of failure? We're all out of luck at that point. And then the United States is most certainly behind. So, again, we are uh, we are on a great trajectory and there's absolutely no reason that we would sidestep at this point.
2: In general, just to, to turn uh Dark again. I want to return to something you mentioned earlier. The, um, the nature of warfare has changed uh, with telecommunications. What is your big concern? Is it merely surveillance? Is it something broader than that? Is it the way that 5G could interact with the Internet of Things? You know, what happens to America's warfighting capability if 5G is insecure?
0: So um, if you haven't seen the movie Social Dilemma, I highly recommend you watch it. It really talks about the subtle influence that the tech companies have over our lives. And ostensibly, they built it for um, you know commerce. They built it so that they could make your life more convenient, so they could sell you more products. What our adversaries have found out that those same... Uh, technologies, those app services and business models, machine learning, artificial intelligence, data collection, really can also be used to influence you in political and social ways. They can influence you to abandon democratic principles and seek out more authoritarian uh, rule-based systems. And in fact, that's that's essentially what they're doing. They're doing that in our society and it's been demonstrated in many different ways by many different researchers. So when you say that we're leading in 5G though, you're not just not being truthful because clearly the Chinese uh, companies, Huawei is the leader in 5G technology today. Um, The Chinese are the leaders in deploying 5G technology. And as I explained, I experienced myself in China in terms of the app services and business models Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent are leading in those areas as well. So it's disingenuous to say that we're leading. We're not leading. And in fact, China uses that data to control its society through something called a social credit score. In other words, if you jaywalk, if you smoke, if you have bad friends, if you criticize the government, your score goes down and your access to services and certainly prices for goods go up or your access to services goes down. They're seeking to do that because they are part of the global economy abroad as well, and they're actually being successful. They've been successful in forcing U.S. companies and other multinational companies to do what they want, to fire employees, to censor employees. These are the goals of the Chinese Communist Party and other authoritarian regimes in this 21st century globally connected world.
2: Diane, is there a
0: partisan split on this? There was a a letter that 18
2: senators, all Republicans led by Senator Thune at Commerce, sent to the president, urging him to maintain the free market approach to 5G. Has this become a partisan issue in Washington?
1: No, not at all. You will see that both Republicans and Democrats agree on this issue. There was also a letter that was sent by the House Intelligence Committee led by Chairman Pallone. You have seen a FCC commission that also agrees that we should keep the current approach, free market-based approach. And if I could just just address the issue about China's winning their, you know, as we said, winning the race to to 5G, that couldn't be further from the truth. The United States started developing and deploying 5G a year before China. We have 75% of Americans covered. China is building the network to nowhere. They have base stations that are not connected to anything. United States is building out in 80 medium and large-sized companies as we speak. We've ha- we will have, from what my understanding, 100 large and medium cities built out by the end of the year. To, to if we're looking to win the race to 5G, our path to success is not being like them. It's doubling down on us, and that's what I'm here to say today. We need to keep on the trajectory that has made us first. 3G, 4G, we're leading on 5G to to anything that would take us off that trajectory would just be ludicrous at this point
2: general the network to
0: nowhere i look i've lived in both places the things that you could do back in 2017 with a smartphone blows america today away and we're talking about moving away from the smartphone as i said to the smart city again Blows America away. There's two cameras for every person in Beijing, and they're all powered by artificial intelligence. So their ability to look at what things are doing to improve their traffic, to improve, you know, coronavirus, um, you know, dealing with that, they are far in advance artificial intelligence-wise, data collection-wise. These companies, quite frankly, they've taken the technology that we developed and they've improved on them greatly, and it shows Last year, Alibaba made $38 billion on 11-11, Singles Day in China. These are global companies. They're going to be the biggest global companies in the world, and they're going to do so on the basis of the fact that we've allowed them into the globalized system, and we allow their telecommunications companies to be right up alongside of AT&T and Qualcomm and Cisco at these standards-making bodies. I'm sorry, but that's the the fact, and you can't deny it, it's happening. I've lived in both systems. Theirs is much better, and it's and it's getting scary, their power over their ability to have power over the rest of the globe as well.
2: And on that disturbing note, <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, that's all the time we have this morning. Uh, Thanks, thank Jim. you, General Spaulding you. and Ms. Ronaldo.
1: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.